are you of the opinion that one day you might retire or the writers don't retire you just keep going um you know i'm i'm still working the day job as you probably know by asking that question and yeah i mean maybe someday um but for now, I'm, I, you know, I have a day job that I really enjoy. If, if it's in fact a new day job, I just started about three months ago. Same kind of work, still in the IT field, but um, you know, a new job. And so I probably shouldn't be talking about retiring <laughs> too quickly since I just started working with them. But uh, I mean, sure, we would all like to to retire, um, but I do like to keep busy. So you know, if I did retire, I think the writing would definitely have to be keeping me very um, busy. And of course, you, you can make it keep keep you as busy as, as you want, uh, depending on how you, you manage your schedule. But uh, for me, I'm probably not like a constant writer. Um, you know, so we'll see. We'll see what retirement holds as far as that goes. But yeah, someday. I didn't mean like next year. Yeah, no, <laughs> I understand. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. We all want to retire, you know, someday. You're right, yeah. I just don't know if uh, I, I could ever see myself. I can see myself uh, not doing much else, but not writing. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, I see what you're saying. So retire from writing. Yeah, you're right. That's I have I sh I share that opinion. Yeah. Um, for me, being retired is not working the day job anymore and just writing, but retiring from writing. Yeah, I think I would always be be doing that. I think so. Yeah. Seems like the, what I'm destined to do. You probably feel the same. I guess you just said you did. Yeah, yeah, just, uh, I mean, we'll see, we'll see, we'll see. I might get to a point where I said, okay, that's the last story. I got nothing else. Yeah. Guess, uh, <laughs> maybe I'll take up painting. Right, doesn't, it doesn't seem possible, does it though? I mean, I don't, I've never spoken to a writer who's like, yeah, I'm just out of stories, you know? Um, in fact, it's always the opposite. Like people are always coming up to writers and saying, oh, I've got a story you can write. Like we're we're sort of like lacking them or, or looking for, you know, somebody to give us a story. We just want to do the writing part, not the not the story imagination part. It's like, no, I have so many stories I can't get to. I, I don't need a, a donation. Uh, thank you though for the for the attempt of a contribution. But yeah, it's uh, even if I took the exact idea, I'm sure you do the same. If I took the exact idea, you could write down the beginning, the middle, the end, the names of all the characters. There's no chance that story is coming out the way you think it's going to come out because once it passes through me, it's going to be raw flavor. Oh, it's going to, <laughs> it's that's going to right. Be that's where the where the where the filter. That's right. Um, that the story passes through. In fact, I I, I often think that, and have probably said that a few times at different critique groups I'm in where folks get, you know, a little kind of worried that someone's going to, you know, steal their story. And I just think the same thing, you know, applies that even if I knew your idea because you come to critique group and, you know, you you, you, you give the, the pitch to your idea, um, it's still going to come out completely differently from from you and what you're, you're going to pursue than what, you know, I would do. So I just don't think that's probably as concerning as some people's are concerned about that but there are a few yeah i've seen that <laughs> i hope that's true until they get better with the ai writing machines yeah uh, once they've got those things working 24 7 spitting out novel after novel eh. <laughs> right right well there's probably a theory that after so many like uh iterations or permutations i suppose that there, it's going to produce exactly, you know, something that that would be produced. I think they 
maybe they've proven that. I'm not sure. I'm an IT guy, and I'm trying to think if I read something about that, but I don't. I don't recall specifically, but it seems like I read something about you know someday they'll have those those machines that'll run through so many stories that that it'll produce exactly something that somebody else has written. So maybe so, but for now we have humans and our minds, and that's that's awesome because we create stories that uh, that are so unique. I I like to think anyway that uh, you know. It's it's better our way, right? <laughs> no computers. <laughs> well, I guess I hope for uh, a quiet uprising that you know uh, humanity shuts down all artificial intelligence and sets us back a couple of hundred years. That'll be great for me because then I'll have you know so many stories available again. I'll just <laughs> That's <laughs> true. <right>? Yeah. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Plus, you knock out the internet, you take away video games. Oh, everybody's reading time just opened up considerably. No more Netflix. Fantastic. <laughs> right, right. It would be great, except, of course, uh, selling books would, would probably become, uh, getting books in hands, not even selling them, but getting books in, in hands would probably be a lot uh, harder without the internet and, and all that as well. So you're right, it would give, it would give us more, more focused readers, but we'd have to get our stories in the hands of the readers somehow. So uh, one problem goes away, the other problem comes in. Always an unforeseen downside to the apocalypse. Ah. That's right. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's my only worry with the apocalypse. Right? Is is uh, you know how are people going to buy books? Right? So. If <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you find out that the world has like a month left, you need to decide what books you're going to read during that month. I guess. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, load up your Kindle and let's hope that at least there's somewhere to get a little power so that uh, you can keep it running while you, uh, you know, I suppose you don't need to load up the Kindle. You have books. You don't need the power. But uh, yeah, uh, books are books. And as I see right behind you on the shelf, there's, you know, just always going to be there. Let's hope, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, hopefully. Uh, although I got to tell you, I keep the books because people are forever sending me arcs and I like anytime somebody comes on the show, I put their book up there so the eagle-eyed reader or viewers on YouTube will try to scan the uh, book okay. titles so they can see it's previous guest books that are behind me. Although I've got three shelves over here, uh, and then we've got another four uh, in the back of the house that are, right. that are filled with uh, with our books. Uh, but then anymore, I still like to have that Kindle because I can carry, you know, all my books with me. I don't have to worry that I forget one book. They're all right there. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I use both. I know there's some readers that are all one way or all the other way. Um, but for me, same thing. I mean, I, there's books that, that I just have to own. It seems like with middle grade, I buy a lot of the, the books, like hardcover. It just seems like I want the book. I don't know if it's writing in the genre if it's just the type of book it is but then you know when i'm reading more like adult books or well young adult is kind of a cross but when i'm reading adult I, I tend to load up the kindle a bit more i mean it's still a mix but but i use both yeah that's for sure because you know you can't beat travel we were away this past weekend and uh I had the Kindle with me it, it, even though we drove to where we went we went down to orlando but even though we drove I was able to just not have to pack like a ton of books, you know, for reading at night and by the pool and stuff like that. I just had the Kindle. So there you go. Nice backlit. It's uh, a little bit, I've also got, you know, I've got the Kindle app on my phone. The problem with that is if I'm reading on my phone and a tweet comes in, I get that alert and then I, oh, well, I'll just quickly check Twitter. 
oh, there's another page of Twitter. I better read it quickly. Whoa, where my book go? I forgot about it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I know a couple of author friends who said they read on their phone quite a lot. And I do have the Kindle app on the phone, but I don't read much on the phone. I think it's, um, I prefer like a sort of a dedicated reading device. It just seems like uh, not only that with too much, you know, distraction, but also just for me, and maybe it's because I have too small of a phone. My, I need a, I need an upgrade, but uh, it's the screen is too small. So, uh, you know, for me, I'd rather have like a little bit bigger Kindle. I mean, it's, it's not that much bigger, but it's, it's big enough, yeah. That's perfect. Like, if, usually when I'm, if I'm reading on my phone, it's because I'm in line at the grocery store and I didn't want to carry my Kindle around while I did all the shopping. Uh, so yeah. it's fine. I my phone. Uh, this line's going to take much longer than I thought it was. So good news. I've got my book handy. That's right. You're dedicated. That's more dedicated. That's as dedicated as I should be, you know, taking every moment to, to read. Um, that's a, that's a definitely a good use. I mean, definitely in the in the grocery store, I wouldn't have my Kindle on me or, or anything like that. Um, but that's a, that's some dedicated reading, you know, every moment you can get, which is which is awesome. Uh, uh, I'm not dedicated it so much as it's just um, I prefer not to pay attention to who's still wearing a mask, who's not wearing a mask. Why yeah, is that's it true. closer than I would like? Uh, <laughs> oh, I get that. I get that. Yeah. Um, it's, it's been hard these last few months with uh, the changing uh, the changing rules and you know people uh, obeying the the different guidelines in the stores and not obeying them and yeah that's tougher that's I, I do the same thing I'm like watching this person or that person who's not wearing a mask and you know that kind of stuff so yeah and you're right I saw that you had received your second vaccination so yeah you're immortal now. Right. <laughs> that's right. Yep. Yep. Nothing can happen to me. That's that's one of those, uh, you know. Uh, I guess I what's the term? Uh, it's anyway. I'm, I'm losing the term on that one. But yes, yes. So I, I think that uh, that I'm just invincible. Like like one of my comic book heroes. I got the uh, one of the Fantastic Four behind me there. Uh, one of my favorite issues. I, I have a t huge comic book collection. But anyway, yeah. So uh, sure, I must be. Uh, I must have superpowers now with that second vaccination. Is that how you feel? Uh, well, uh, I feel a lot better than when I didn't have it. I went to the movies for the first time in a year and a half. I, I went to a matinee on an off day. I saw A Quiet Place too. But okay. that's not going to be the same at home with the seven-year-old demanding food every five minutes. Like right. That's not going to be scary and fun. <laughs> uh, so there were like three other people in the theater. And I, you know, I had my mask on the whole time sitting uh, socially distant from everybody. But, oh my gosh, it was so nice to, to see a movie on the big screen again and hear that I forgot how loud the, the speakers are at the theater. I've been listening yeah. on quiet every night while, while my, my kids sleeping. Yeah, I miss that. And that's one of the things that I haven't done yet. I mean, I kind of have, my list is small, but but two things that I, I kind of still have on the, and I don't know if, if they're in store for me in 2021, although I'm starting to think, the movie theater one is going to drop off, but it's it's going to a movie theater and being on a plane. So, so far, those are like, I'm still not comfortable, you know, doing those. Like we just, as I said, we just went on a vacation and we, we kind of went on a long drive just to, you know, not fly. Um, but, uh, and I haven't gone to a movie theater yet, although when I was on vacation, we were actually kind of considering it. We were like, well, maybe we could go to a movie. So I think that will probably drop off soon. And The Quiet Place 2 would be a good one 
that I would break it for, um, for sure. I, I would definitely go see that one. I love the, the first movie. Um, and also I heard Cruella was really good. I just read something on the internet that it was maybe not, I don't know, surprisingly is the right word. I mean, I, I don't think it was going to be a bad movie, but I was surprised at how glowing the review was of, uh, of Cruella. So I put that on the list too, for me. <laughs> Disney Plus before long, I'm sure. I have a rule with all the Disney movies uh, is I don't watch them ahead of my son because if he okay. likes it, we're going to watch it 20 times. Many times, so yes. Yeah. <laughs> bits and pieces of it. So Carillo's one I'll wait till he makes a ruling on, and if he likes it, then I'll, I'll watch it in, in bits and pieces as he's watching it. Uh, and if he doesn't care for it, eh, I'll stay up some night and I'll, I'll, I'll watch it because it looks like a good one. Makes sense, makes sense, yep. Another cap that is the, the start of the show. We've been talking about writerly things. Why not? <laughs> sure. Sounds great. Sounds like a good thing. <laughs> Hawkins. Um, my guest is, is, is Chris Negron. Am I saying that right? Yes, that's right. Uh, and as the audience knows, I never uh, summarize uh, anyone else's biography or anyone else's book because uh, I still want us to still be friends coming into the show. So I'm not going to mess up either of those things. Uh, so if you would kind of give uh, esteemed audience a little bit of an overview of your background and we'll go from there. Sure, sure. So um, so for me, I, I was born in, uh, I was going to say I started, like, uh, <laughs> I guess being born is, is, is starting, but uh, I was born in Buffalo, New York, um, and grew up there. And uh, in my first book, kind of uh, Dan Unmasked, that came out last year, was kind of based on, you know, where I grew up and, and that sort of thing. Um, the one I'm going to talk about more tonight, probably Last Super Chef's a little bit different. But anyway, grew up in Buffalo. Um, a pretty standard uh, childhood. I'm not going to go through the the uh, the full details, but uh, you know, into sports, um, growing up into comic books quite a bit, and uh, went off to college in Connecticut. I went to to Yale University for computer science, which I still do today. I'm still in the IT world, uh, and that's what I did for you know coming out of college and and right up until about 40, so about uh, 20 years or more. Um, was was you know in the IT life I had I actually started my own business where um, I was a contractor kind of consultant type person kind of a one-man show for a while um, that was after several years of working for other companies um, but around 40 I guess I I started to, to really think about the dream I had always had since childhood really to to get into writing um, you know my dad was a a math science kind of science engineering type guy and so you know when I was uh, going to college he was really like you know you need to get that kind of degree and, and honestly I don't I don't disagree I, I love my IT life as well but I, I did always since I was a kid playing like Dungeons and Dragons and creating characters and taking them through stories in my friend's uh, basement and, and uh, that kind of thing I always wanted to like turn those stories like into a book. In fact, I remember telling one of my friends we were like shooting some hoops in the driveway after we had a Dungeons and Dragons session. And I was just really enamored with the story that the dungeon master at the time, who was my friend's older brother, was creating. And I said, you know, I think someday I'm going to write this whole thing into a book, right? And so it was kind of what it would have been like high fantasy, that sort of thing. Um, I never did that because uh, I just never, by the time I decided to write, I, I wasn't you know, really a fantasy writer anymore, at least in my mind. But uh, yeah, when I turned about 40, I, I said, you know, I always had that dream to write. So I started to just 
jot some things down, join, join critique groups a few towns away. And now since then, we've had some here at the local library where I live, you know, pop up. So I also, I'm also in those groups and just uh, learned a lot. It took me, I guess, 10 years from there. I'm, I'm in about a month, I'm going to hit the big 5-0. So I'm going to turn 50 in about a month. And so it took me 10 years to really get to where I am now, where I'm, I'm a published author. So I don't know how many years, it was at least six years before I wrote the book, I suppose that became Dan Unmasked, which was my debut. Um, I think it was my fifth completed novel. So I have four trunk novels or under the bed novels, whatever, whatever term you use in the drawer, bottom drawer kind of thing, use them as a, as a you know, lift up the table kind of thing. Um, but uh, but yeah, it was my fifth novel that that became the the first published novel. And so um, the last Super Chef, which is coming out in about a month from when we're talking, is um, is my sixth, I suppose, but my second published novel. So we stopped using that term. You know, I've written six. We start saying, oh, it's my second novel, as if it's just that's what creates the the impression, I suppose, amongst some folks. It's like, oh yeah, he just wrote two books, and now he's well, of course, none of us are, or most none of us are, are like that. We have many books that we've written before we get to that point. But, um, but yeah, so that's me. I suppose that's a little bit about my writing path and, and where I grew up and, and went to school and all that. Um, so I'll, I'll stop there. <laughs> well, it's uh, lots to unpack. Uh, I should, that seemed obvious, knows the deal. You and I talk ahead of the book launch, and this will post, I think, in August after the book launch. Okay. So, you know, Probably scratching the head and going, Quiet Place 2, didn't that come out forever ago? Not for us. It's, right. <laughs> it's relatively new for us. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, um, well, let's uh, let's start with your your, your journey uh, to become a published author. So at 40, you say, I'm doing this. And I know that you uh, had uh, managed to secure not one, but two uh, literary agents. So do you start right off the bat with novel number one? Or what's your process to get that written? Yeah, sure. So, um, no, it took me until, I guess it was the third book. I think it was my third book that I got the, yes, um, my first agent with. And at the time, I was writing uh, not kids' books yet. I was actually writing for um, adults, kind of like upmarket, like book club kind of fiction. Um, just where I thought I, I was at the time. Um, I, actually, when I first started writing, I was sort of, I'm a big Neil Gaiman fan, and I think there was a moment where I thought it was going to be, you know, Neil Gaiman, so I was right, maybe the first book was, and even the second were kind of like a little bit of urban fantasy, kind of, I mean, they were just kind of flailing attempts, you know, to be honest, um, but the, the third book was this, I had switched to this upmarket um, uh, genre, and I had gone to, we have a great uh, conference here in Atlanta um, that actually one of my friends uh, from the Atlanta Writers Club uh, helps to run, and uh, he invites agents and editors to, to come down to Atlanta and get a chance to pitch them and get critiques from them and so forth, and actually at one of those conferences, I got my first agent with that third book, which was sort of a book clubby upmarket, um, and so, you know, she tried to find a home for it, obviously, after we edited it a little bit, she tried to find a home for it and just, it, it never found a publishing home. So then I wrote another book and that one kind of had a lot of bumps and it would have taken a lot of work to get it to the point where we could even submit it. And I was kind of, 
I think a lot of writers have this sort of crossroads moment, you know, where it's like, okay, what am I going to do now? I had a book. I thought that was going to be my first book, but didn't sell. I have an agent. Um, and then what happened was um, another writing friend and I started writing a lot of flash fiction. So we were just, we were both at the same point, I think. We were both kind of struggling to get published. We, we had kind of started at a similar time. And I don't know, we were just following each other. And so we started writing a lot of flash fiction short pieces and kind of handing them off to each other and trying to get them published in lit mags. And I wrote one that was a bunch of uh, kids in the outfield. It was a real short piece, obviously flash fiction under a thousand words or so. And they were just having this, this rapport with each other. And it was kind of about, um, you know, growing up, being on the baseball team myself, but being in Buffalo, when we would start playing in the spring, it's quite different than what I see down here in Atlanta and Florida and Texas now that I'm more aware, where kids play almost year round. You know, we would start to play in the spring, but there would still be big ice chunks in the in the outfield from the from the snow that hadn't melted yet, and we'd kick at them. And so I, I just wrote a piece like that that was sort of evocative of that. And and what the kids were were saying to each other was, um, "Don't you wish we could?" We could play where they play all year round and all this stuff. And then they, they started really thinking about it and thinking, well, then we'd have to leave each other, you know. And so it was kind of a friendship story. It was like, oh, we wouldn't want to do that. And so, you know, it was it was I, it was that's even that description makes it sound longer than it was. It was it began and it was over before you knew it. Um, but basically, the point of saying that is because my my partner when she read it, she said, you know, you have a real voice for like kids this age, you know, you, sh you should think about in sports. And, and of course it, it was coming from me because it was, it was my experience. So um, she said, you should think about writing a whole book that way. So I did, I started to, to write that. And I found that she was right, that I really felt good in that voice in that middle grade. And then I started thinking about all the things I like, like if I had to name like favorite movies, it's like super eight you know, an E.T. and all those kind of, and it was like, you know, you like middle grade. You don't realize you like middle grade, but you like, you know, characters that age, you know, kind of, especially bands of friends trying to accomplish something, that sort of thing. So um, that's when I realized, you know, I really need to go for this. So I talked to that first agent and she doesn't do anything in the children's space, right? She's She doesn't have contact with those editors or so forth. And so she sort of was like, um, you know, that's if that's the direction you want to take your career, you know, I'm all for it. It's just I wouldn't be the agent for for you. Um, and of course, that's a that's a hard message to hear because it's like, OK, well, I knew how hard it was to get an agent. It took me years. Right. Um, by this time, I, it's probably 2016. So between starting maybe around 2010 or so and writing all those books and finally spending two years or so getting an agent. But I, I decided it was the right thing to do. So we separated and then I went back on the, the query hunt. Um, and this time I found my second agent through just the standard query process, you know, not at a conference like I found that first agent. So, you know, my message to writers is just that uh, you can do it both ways. You know, I think sometimes they see the, the query process and there's all that rejection and all that, you know, not same that same thing and I had been coming from having an agent but eventually you can do it so and and I did so now I, I'm with that agent and uh, of course the rest is history as they say 
the first book that I wrote, um, that's that was the book that became Dan Unmasked. It had a lot of ups and downs to get there, but uh, eventually it did get there, and uh, and that was my debut. And then The Last Super Chef would be my my second uh, middle grade. So basically, I think I, I think she was right because I didn't have to write so many novels and put them in the drawer once I got into the right genre. Um, and so that's that's another thing I always say to writers is, you know, the genre that's perfect for you may not be the genre that you start out thinking is going to be the one for you. You have to sort of, you know, they say find your voice, which is kind of this mystical thing, I suppose. But you do have to kind of follow what resonates the different stuff that you write, you know, which, which of it resonates with, uh, with readers and critique group partners and all that kind of thing. And what you what you expect. So, yeah, that's the story of my agents. <laughs> and downs there. And of course, I'm talking to you now uh, prior to the launch of your second book here mm -hmm. on the Little Great Ninja podcast, the top of the world, uh, obviously. But there you go. That's, it's what I aspired to go. Your agent, you've got that, that fourth book, that third book that was almost there, and the fourth book that's a little bit of trouble. There had to be some frustration, and I don't know what you're making in IT, but I have to imagine if you compare it with, I think, uh, the annual salary for incomes according to the Authors Guild of 2017-2018 was $6,080 annual salary. I don't know what IT professionals make, but I assume it's greater than $6,080. Um, so was there a point there where you said, you know what, maybe this is more trouble than it's worth and we're going to walk away? And if you didn't, why not? Yeah, good question. So um, I think there was... What I can say for sure, I'm trying to think if there was a point. I mean, of course, there probably was like a point to walk away. I can't remember, you know, sort of a distinct moment. I think more it was maybe I'm not going to find like a traditional publishing home, which was really my goal, obviously, to go through all that. So I know I had definite points where I was thinking, hey, you know, maybe I could self-publish this one or that one and that that sort of thing. And, you know, self Self-publishing is totally legitimate option, right? But um, I kept, I kept thinking, no, um, I, maybe it was because I had, you know, a good day job, and I could kind of, it wasn't something that I was staking my, you know, my uh, income on or or whatever. I kind of, I kind of just kept at it. Um, so I don't remember a time when I was like, I'm just going to throw in the towel completely. Although the, it probably was, but there was definitely some. I don't want to make it sound like a rosy path, right? Because there was definitely moments of despair, you know, as with all of us, right? The rejection is hard and uh, I got rejected. And I got, I mean, I got so close in a number of situations, both with agents. And then after I, I found my, my agent is Alyssa Jeanette at Stonesong, by the way, and she's marvelous. So I should get that in there. So any writers looking to to submit? I think she might be close to submissions, though, so I don't want to. But anyway, um, she's marvelous. And um, it, when she was taking it to publishers, there was also a lot of moments where we had an interested editor. And then for one reason or another, it didn't get through acquisitions. And it seemed like it was that first book. It was like, wait, no, oh, wait. I think, you know, and then finally we, we, we hit the right editor and, and, and got the right deal, of course, uh, as happens. But uh, yeah, so it's funny, as close as you get, sometimes the closer you get, the more, the greater the despair is when it doesn't work out, right? It's almost better to be early in the process and far away because 
at least you know, well, it's it's out there. It's just I haven't gotten there yet. But then when you get there and and, and then it's like you're inches away and then it's a no, it's like you I don't know, maybe I was unique to me, but you almost feel like more like it's never gonna happen than than the earlier days. But I don't know, that's probably just the way it happened for me, I suppose. I had a similar experience where I was already planning my uh, marketing uh, campaign, and then nope, it didn't, didn't quite work out. Oh, that was my only ever chance. That was that was it. That's, That's right. <laughs> That's what you think. So here, here's two of us both having that thought. So any writers listening should should uh, should try not to have that thought because uh, uh, there's a lot of uh, different opportunities out there, and you just have to keep plugging away and. Um, I would say in my case, it was good to have the agent I had because, um, you know, I remember even reaching out to her and saying, you know, she was really like pitching to the big five mostly because she she thought that was the kind of book I had written, which, of course, that's number one. First thing to, to have is a, an agent that believes so strongly in your work. But then when I reached out to her, I, you know, after a number of those rejections, and I said, well, maybe we should go for a smaller publisher. And she was really... I'm steadfast, you know, she was like, no, I think this is a, a big five book. We just got to find the right, the right person, which, you know, it would have been fine perhaps to get a, you know, with a smaller deal as well, with a smaller publisher, I should say. But, um, but I'm glad that she was so steadfast when I was, when I was wavering, because I think that's, that's the nature of that, that partnership, right? Is that, you know, one side props the other up at, at the right points for, for different purposes. So. The successful version of that relationship is. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and then of course she gets you with Harper Collins, a little, little obscure indie publisher. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, yeah, it was it was great to get that, of course. Um, you know, and it's been great working with Harper Collins um, through the whole both processes. And actually, I have a um, a little bit of a scoop for you. I know you probably have, have more questions along the line of what you were asking, oh, but. Um, it's not too much of a scoop because, again, like you said, this is not going to air till August. But I, I wouldn't have, if this had been yesterday, I wouldn't have been able to say it. I've announced it on some of the social media channels um, today. But I, I just learned last week and was just made official today that um, the last Super Chef is an indie next uh, kids pick for from the uh, American Booksellers Association for July August, twenty twenty one. So it, it made the list and. <laughs> And they told me last week, but they said you can't you can't say anything until until June eighth when the newsletter comes out. And so it it came out. I verified before I got on the on this call so that I could say it without feeling guilty, even though it won't air for a while. But uh, yeah, so I'm I'm really honored that the last Super Chef uh, got that and appreciative to Harper Collins and everybody else for you know the visibility for for some of the books. It's been great. It will air for a while, but a student audience can see. And, and live vicariously through you. They can see the, the glow <laughs> it's that's right. from you and, and the happiness that it's obviously brought you. What does being on a list like that, what do you anticipate that's going to do for the book? Well, yeah, that's a good question. Um, the first book was on the Indies Introduced list, Dan Unmasked. So um, I know that, um, and I don't know the full details because I'm not a book I should I should find out more. Um, I should have found out more with the first book. Maybe I will for this book. But um, I know that there's like um, some marketing materials that the ABA, the American Bookseller Association, sends to the indie bookstores 
there's um, in the announcement there was something about a trifold piece that they send that you can prop up in the front of your store that shows this this you know excuse me this month's picks and that sort of thing. So um, obviously for me thinking that it will hopefully increase the visibility a little bit you know in both in store and you know online so that maybe we can get a little bit of a a boost and, and the more people who know about The Last Super Chef or, or um, Dan Mass, which by the way, Dan Mass today, the paper, I got all these announcements today. It was a perfect day for the for the uh, the podcast. Uh, I'm jumping from one thing to the other, but Dan Mass, the paperback was released today. So the paperback version is is out as of today. Um, obviously for the last year, it's just been hardcover and audiobook and so forth. But um, yeah, so anyway, finishing it. Yeah, thank you, thank you. It's all this, all this good news. I waited. I designed it so that we could just talk about <laughs> this on your on your podcast. Um, but anyway, so so getting back to your question, um, yeah, it's just hopefully visibility, and you know, I, obviously, all of us are writing to get the stories and the books we we write that we think are you know important on some level in more hands. Um, not you know as much for a sales thing, although I don't want to be. Pollyanna-ish about it. I mean, of course, we want to sell books, but you know, we want to just right. We want to just get the the stories in the hands of readers who maybe it will mean something to. You know, that's that's why I write them in over eight anyway. So yeah. Well, obviously, I mean, you became an author because you wanted to make all the money. That goes without saying. That's right. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I assume that you know, great book sales. You've got a publisher that supports you. You've got an agent. You've got and an editor. You've got a lot of folks that. Not just you. We would want to see a successful how for how hard they've worked on your album. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. Especially the, um, you know, the agent author relationship. Obviously, it's like it's a business partnership. You know, and and how well the book does or I do is is helpful to her to my agent. And all the all the work she's put into the books and my career and everything else. And of course, my editor too. I mean. You know, the more successful the books, you know, she chooses to to buy and to and to put forward are the better for her career. And I, I know she's um, the editor that I work with is Elizabeth Lynch at at Harper Collins, and I know she's been uh, promoted from associate to. Uh, I don't want to get this wrong, but I think she's she's like a regular editor now. Is when when I started working with her, she was associate. So obviously that's completely due to me and my books, right? So <laughs> she's that's happened. Uh, no, just. She's fantastic as well. Um, and uh, there was. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, what's uh, I've got all kinds of questions for you about uh, about okay. writing in your journey. Let's, let's let's talk about the last super chef. Um, so I, I promised I won't uh, summarize your book. What does esteemed audience need to know as they are ordering their copy or checking their copy out from the library right now? What are those books? Yeah, sure. So, um, so the last super chef is about um, eleven-year-old Curtis, who is one of those uh, kids who you see on like MasterChef Junior or any of these, you know, baking Junior uh, shows on on uh, Food Network. Or he's he's already like an expert chef at that age, right? Sometimes you watch those shows and you say, how how can a kid make a souffle already? I, I I'm almost fifty and I can't make a souffle and never probably will be able to. Um, but he is one of those kids and he is the mega fan of the show that is on tv called uh, the super chef 
So, of course, uh, hence the title of the book. And uh, he actually also has a secret, which is that um, he, the super chef is his father, um, or that's one of the mysteries of the book. Is he or is he not? Uh, at least Curtis um, believes that he is. And um, so when the super chef announces, he starts acting a little funny on TV. And of course, as closely as Curtis watches, he notices it right away. He notices he's missing his buttons. And the super chef is like a, a Gordon Ramsay type person, right? I always say the book is, uh, if I had to, I'm, gonna, I'm going into this long description, which I'm going to try to cut short because I, I tend to ramble. But, <laughs> but if I had to describe it sh uh, in a short way, I would say it's Willy Wonka meets Gordon Ramsay. That's, that's the last super chef. Um, but to continue what I was saying, so um, after the super chef starts acting odd, and of course Curtis notices because he watches every episode, he stands two inches from the television and he's just locked in. Um, he announces that he's going to have a, a last final competition and he's calling it the last super chef. And instead of the adult contest contestants he usually has, he's inviting five kids to uh, compete against each other for sort of this, this big prize, a bigger prize than he's ever, you know, had on the show. And so suddenly Curtis has this possibility to be one of these five kids. So this becomes his, of course, his life's mission. And, uh, you know, the story kind of goes from there um, into the cooking competition and so forth. And, you know, one of the reasons of right, people ask like, so are you a big cook? And I'm actually not, I'm not a very good cook at all. So why did you write it? Well, I'm just a, a huge fan of those kind of cooking shows. So Top Chef, Master Chef, Iron Chef, like any of these, you know, so I had to make my own Super Chef. Um, and I'm just, I like, you know, competition. I'm a sports person, right? So I like, I like that kind of, you know, cont contest competitions. But I also like, like seeing people, I like creativity, obviously, as a writer. And I like, the cooking shows, I think, because they're a competition, but they're also people being very creative, taking this life's work that they've done. Like if you watch, like currently there's a new season of Top Chef airing. I think I just watched, uh, I missed it last Thursday, but I, I came home from vacation last night. The first thing I did was put on my recorded version of the, this, the Top Chef episode I missed. Um, and it's just, you know, there's all these very creative people and they're at the top of their game and they're they're doing things that they never tried before and pushing themselves. And that's kind of what the kids do in, in The Last Super Chef. You know, it's a diverse, the, the five kids. They're, they're slightly inspired by, you know, the five kids in Willy Wonka, except, of course, they're different than my own creation. Um, but they're very diverse. There's one from Japan and there's, there's two girls and, and three boys and there's one from Mexico. And so there's you know, I, I like to think there's a lot of representation. Um, there's a, a black girl from, from Boston who's in the competition. So there's all these different kids. And it's just the same thing. It's like they're all, for their age, at the top of their game. And, and of course, when Curtis gets there, he's, he's kind of intimidated because as, as much as he's studied the craft of cooking, he realized now he's around kids that really have done everything he's done. And suddenly he's not, you know, at the top, he's... He's just mixed in with them. So I don't want to say too much more than that because I'll start spoiling it <laughs> if I don't if I'm not careful. But but that's the, the gist of the last super chef. It's a it's a, a cooking competition. Um, kid kid trying to find a lost parent sort of a gritty competition type of a, a book. And hopefully it's it's inspiring to kids for 
for lots of different re reasons, which uh, that's, of course, the goal. So. Well, it's too much of a spoiler to say, but all but one of the children is murdered by Oompa Loompas. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's right. Yep. They're, they come out of the... They, they come out at night and it turns into a horror middle grade and and uh yep yeah, it's it's the it's the biggest switcheroo that you've ever seen <laughs> well i maintain that, that the original charlie the chocolate factory in addition to being uh very uncomfortable in places now uh yeah. is a horror story uh you start off with a set number of people and they get picked up and, until you come mm -hmm. to the one who's worthy of surviving the monster who is willy wonka and this is it's funny because when I started researching, you know, the pieces, because in, in different points of the book, there's little different little send ups. And of course, the reason I I have a little bit, I mean, there's not much, right? It's not like it's a reproduction or a retelling of, of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory or anything. But I was a fan when I was a kid of that, um, that story, of course, which is why it's stuck in my head. Like, what kind of story do you want to tell? And when I started researching it, I read the same thing. It was like, you know, started getting into the details of, oh, yeah, you know, people were, were writing all these blogs about how it's really a um, a horror story and how um, when they take the boat down and they descend, it's kind of like reminiscent of like Dante and descending into, into like hell or something. And I'm like, oh, gosh, this is like more analysis than I ever did about uh, Roald Dahl's uh, work and, and, and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. So I did I did go down that rabbit hole, but I didn't um, use much of that research in, in the, the story I decided to tell. But uh, yeah, I did see a lot of that. <laughs> so if you're not cooking yourself, obviously you're very passionate uh, about the shows. Um, what uh, what attracted you to a cooking competition, not being a, a cook yourself, and then what research do you have to do to be able to at least bluff your way when you're writing about characters who are better cooks than you are? Right, right. So good, good question. Um, yeah, so again, what attracted me to them when, when I just, I mean, I'm trying to remember the first one. I guess it was Iron Chef, the Japanese version. They started airing it over here. And then I know early on, Top Chef, I mean, I wrote, I, I think it's the 18th season or something like that. I've watched Top Chef from the very beginning. It's that same thing I was saying. It's the that's that was the attraction was the competition and the excelling create creatively and sort of you know com competing against each other, but in a friendly way, which you sometimes see in sports and you sometimes don't. Right? Sometimes it gets a little vicious in real sports. I know the my Atlanta Hawks are playing right now. I think, and, and when we finish, I'll probably go run and see the status, but. Uh, um, you know, sometimes in like the NBA and things like that, things get a little heated and there's not so much friendly competition. But usually in these cooking shows, they're, um, they have a lot of respect for each other, right? It's not like uh, uh, these reality shows where they're trying to, you know, have alliances and kick each other off the show and that kind of stuff. So I, I enjoy that. Um, as far as the, the second part of your question, um, I did do a lot of research as I was writing things and I used a lot of things from like my experience. So when I was choosing a dish, sometimes it would be like a dish I remembered eating at a, at a certain very good memory or something like that. Like I know in Japan, like I said, one of the chefs is Japanese and she does something, maybe I won't say because that way I don't have to spoil it, but she cooks something or they partner up to cook something. Like each, each challenge has a different nature to it, just like in these shows. And they, they cook something that I had in like a, a basement in Osaka at a department store. That's one of my like 
favorite meals of all time. And I just remember that meal so, so fondly that I, I said, okay, I want to look up how you make this. And so that's what I did. I did all the research. Um, but the other part of that question, the answer to that question is that I'm one of my, I was fortunate, this was just sheer luck, I suppose, but I'm one of my um, writing workshop um, travels. Uh, I met a chef, a former chef, who was becoming a writer, and we were at the same workshop trying to learn to write, just like many years ago. Her name's Ivy Knight, and she um, is a former chef. She's a food writer, and we have a little bit of a relationship as far as like exchanging work and so forth, kind of long distance, because she's up in Toronto and I'm in Atlanta. And so she agreed to read the book, and she really helped me get all those things that I might have gotten wrong with her experience as, as you know, she worked in kitchens and you know, now she writes for magazines, but it's mostly food articles and she's interviewed people like Anthony Bourdain and all those kind of folks. So, you know, she brought that expertise wherever I was sort of lacking it. So I, I can't uh, I can't thank her enough uh, for, for that part of the critique. And in fact, she's going to be at my book launch on the 6th, the night of the 6th, which, like you said, this will air after that. But the night of July 6th, she's gonna, we're going to be in conversation together so we could talk a little bit about that uh, experience and, and how we, we work together and kind of at a food level. So, um, so multi-pronged answer <laughs> to how I got the Good cooking part. parts right. The launch was, was, was a smashing success. That's right. Yeah, I just, I, I mean, I could have said I just winged it. And if there's anything wrong, you know, too bad. But um, and there probably still is stuff wrong in the book that some expert uh, cooks and chefs will say, well, that's not quite right. Maybe both Ivy and I missed it. It's obviously um, as appreciative as I, I am to Ivy and as, as much as I said anything there, obviously any remaining mistakes are, are mine. Um, it, it probably would be something that I just didn't listen to her on or something like that. But uh, but yeah, I'm sure there's there's mistakes still to catch. But we did make a pretty good attempt to try to get you know as much of the the food and chef stuff uh, right as we could. And of course, a lot of it was also just just watching the shows. I mean, like I said, I watch those shows religiously, so I don't know how the that was another thing I had to research. I don't know how the shows work exactly in the background. I kind of made some stuff fit the way I wanted the show to work, although it may not be in reality the way they. They work, but I also have some some writing friends who are have a background in like television and movies and so forth. Their their day job is like acting and those types of things, or at least part of it. So they were able to help me, you know, on the pieces where it was a TV show. They would say, "Yeah, I don't think it would work like this. You probably would have to have this and that." So I guess I'm just fortunate to have so many critique partners from so many different walks of life that uh, could help me get the details right. Sounds like it's absolutely key. So what's the uh, Atlanta Writers Club? Because I know you're you're with several different uh, critique groups. But what's what's the Atlanta Writers Club specifically? How are you finding yourself with all these different critique partners? Yeah, good question. So um, so I started out um, like I said, traveling about four no two two towns down south of of where I actually live because there was nothing really at the time ten years ago going on up here and the the critique group that I joined was the Atlanta Writers Club is kind of the, the and I'm not an expert on it, um, I have never been on the board or anything, but it's kind of the old uh, writing club here in town. Um, I think they're since like 1912 or something like that. I mean, they've been around forever. And they have a program where they have, you know, people will launch critique groups that are kind of sponsored by the bigger club 
that's more down in the city or at least, you know, in, inside the perimeter, as we call it uh, here in Atlanta. Um, and these these group, uh, groups will pop up all over. So the closest one for me was this one in, in Roswell, Georgia. Um, so that's where I headed. You know, I, I, I called them up. I, I figured out how to join and, you know, went down there. And of course, I was very nervous. I had some writing that first night, but I didn't read, you know, because I was like too nervous to. Um, but that whole move is really what launched a lot of all these things I've been talking about, the the critique group friend that uh, has the background in, in movies and so forth, and the friend that uh, mentioned that maybe I had a voice for writing. All those people I kind of met through that little group, and we used to meet in like an Atlanta bread restaurant, and uh, and later we, we started meeting in people's homes and so forth. But there was just a uh, such a diverse group of people that run through that group that I, I was in. I haven't actually been in that group for some number of years because it was a drive for me to get there. And once I got to a certain point and once we started having some groups up here and in my town to go to, I started switching to those and those groups are wonderful as well. But that's how it that's how it started um, with the exception of Ivy. So Ivy was um, somebody I met at the Yale Writers uh, Workshop. So there's a summer uh, writers workshop uh, right on the campus of Yale and, and because I went there for undergrad when I was fishing around for a workshop this is more like a workshop where you actually go you know with your work for like a week or so and you you workshop your stuff every day you go to class and you're in with a group of people and Ivy just happened to be in the, the same group I was in and so we met you know through that so that wasn't a local a local thing so I would just say to writers I mean yeah, join things. Um, and especially when you join, I mean, when you join a critique group, my experience has been, you know, eventually you start to look for people who are like-minded to you, whether it's you're, you're at the same stage of your writing career and you're, you're experiencing the same stuff. Because sometimes, you know, you could be very similar to another person, but, you know, they're already published and you're trying to get there and it's, it's not as easy to work together. But when you find a person who has kind of the same mindset and also seems to be at the same point in the journey that you are, that's when you maybe, you know, pull that person aside and say, hey, do you wanna, you know, start exchanging things a little more than just these five pages we bring every, you know, two weeks or whatever? <laughs> because a lot of those groups, that that's all it is. And of course, at some point you get hungry for that, you know, I wanna give you a, like, 40 pages because I have it <laughs> and can, can you read it and can I read your 40 pages and so when you find that person that's really when you start to in my experience you know sort of take off um, because you get that more constant critique and so forth so but that's how I've met a lot of the people it started with that little group kind of branched off in different ways and I'm still meeting with lots of those people even today <laughs> reminds me I should um, I've, got, I've got one of my uh, critique partners. She has a book coming out uh, that's, that's quite different, but it is also about uh, a cooking competition. Uh, but I can't remember what the final title is. I know what it was when I read it. Okay. <laughs> uh, Sarah J. Schmidt, author of It's a Wonderful Death. Start with that book, and then some point this year, I want to say it's where there's a whisk, there's a way. But I bet, oh. it's, I bet the title's changed since then, and I will right. be here. That's, That's a great. Just go to com. After okay. you finish the last Super Chef, your appetite's going to be what? You're going to want another cooking competition book. Good news. Uh, Sarah Schmidt's got you covered. And, and she's also an excellent critique partner. 
Um, sorry, no more ads for critique partners. That's, that's no, that's list. that's perfectly great. I want to say before you continue that, if that's not the title, it should be because it's a that's a great title. Where there's a wish, there's a way. That's an awesome title. I mean, not that I'm going to steal it, but it's it's a great title. Yeah. I think uh, I think hopefully we're we're at the point where the last super chef is pretty much definitely the title. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Although it did change, it was. Um, Oh, you know what? It's called Where There's a Whisk. I apologize, Sarah. Oh, okay. Google's a thing. Let's find out. Where, where There's there a Whisk. Yeah. Be available October 5th. So plenty of time for you to enjoy uh, The Last Super Chef. Uh, read that one a couple of times. Really get your appetite up. And then come October 5th, there's, there's Sarah Dishman. Right. <laughs> it's actually interesting because if you think about the, and I had to remember for a second, I knew the title was something else, but it was close. It was actually originally called the next super chef, but it shows kind of how the um, the story changed too, because that 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 would have fit the the version that I turned into my editor. But after we we worked through it through several revisions, it became the last super chef because it was really uh, a little bit different story. The way it ends, of course, is a little bit different. I'm not going to spoil it, but hopefully that doesn't spoil much. But um, yeah, that's that's why it changed. So it actually would be interesting, I think, to. And sometimes you get these through these kinds of interviews, of course. Um, but it would be interesting if someone published a, a list of like, you know, former titles, final titles, sort of things to different, you know, famous books. So you could look at it and say, oh, I bet you back when it was called that, I bet you the story was, of course, as writers, we can sort of anticipate. Oh, I bet you the story was different in this way just by looking at the, the difference in the title. Um, but maybe not. I don't know. It's part of why I'm tempted to go back and delete all of my old drafts, burn all my notes. <laughs> you don't need, if it was good enough for you, esteemed audience, that's the version you, you would have got. I know my wife uh, wrote her master's thesis on Stephen King's The Gunslinger, which is the first book in his wonderful The Dark Tower series. Um, but he wrote, he published three or four different versions of that before the final revised edition came out. Uh, he started when he was 19 and published it right. in. And she went through and looked at every difference between every version and, and wrote an entire master's thesis about it. Uh, and, and if you've read it, you're, you're the one that's Steve Douglas. That's interesting, yeah. To see what, what you could tell about the mindset of a writer at 19 versus a writer, you know, well-established. I don't remember how old he was when he wrote the, the final version. Yeah, so. yeah, it would be, it would be, and and I think that's that's really cool about. I don't know if I knew that fully about the gunslinger. It's funny because I never got into that particular part of. I know, and I know I have like a brother-in-law who's a huge fan of. That's his favorite Stephen King. Um, I just never really, for some reason, read that that part of his work. You know, I read more of the pure horror stuff but it's just that's just choices right it's not because i didn't think it was good i just i just didn't get into it so there's still time the there is still time awesome. you know that's <laughs> you know, that's the funny thing about books is is if you didn't catch them the year they came out they're still there for you to, for you to find and, and read later that's that's great yep I read and was annoyed by the Thornbirds for the first time a couple of months ago. I was on oh, wow. the cutting edge of, uh, of literature. That's right. I have not read that. I can remember the miniseries. Uh, I think my mom was into it when uh, those many years ago when it was when it was created. I never never saw the series because I happen to have a paper book, uh, paperback that I probably ended up getting from my mom. <laughs> Way back when I saw it sitting there, one day. Oh, what the heck? Right. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's funny. No, I mean, anything uh, we write will be around uh, forever. And something fun that I had uh, read about you, you've got over 10,000 different comic books, including the one there behind yeah. you. Yeah, that's right. I got there's just one behind me, um, but yeah, that's right. I've been collecting since uh, I don't have the age, but certainly since about that age, probably twelve or thirteen at least, or earlier, when I decided, hey, someday I'm going to be a writer. I think probably the comic books and reading so many different kinds of stories was a big part of that. And I just have never kicked the the hat. I just still enjoy them, and I still read every one. I'm, I've never been. I never turned into like sort of the collector that, you know, just buys for for value. And in fact, I don't really. What the reason I still have ten thousand is because I don't really resell them. I I think that someday I might, right? Someday it'll be like my, my. You were talking about retirement in the earlier part of the conversation. Maybe it'll be my my retirement fund or something. Um, although I don't have any like, you know, this one's worth like thousands of dollars. I have some right that are probably hundreds, but, and enough of them that they would add up after a while. But, you know, I also have plenty that are probably not even worth the, the cover price I paid for as well. Um, but yeah, I just, I still go, I don't, I can't say I go every week because I wish I had a store closer to me. So I don't have something that's, you know, within 20 minutes that I would just, if I did, I would go like every Wednesday still and just, you know, comic book come out on Wednesday, I would go. And, and a lot of that is in Dan and Mass because, the kids are such big comic book. They're, all, they're big baseball fans, but there's also a big uh, comic book plot in, in Dan and Mass. And a lot of that just comes from me, right? From the kids go every Wednesday and they're they're so dedicated to this uh, comic book that I created inside of that book called uh, Captain Nexus and the Nexus Five, which is sort of a, you know, in, in the last Super Chef, there's these send-ups we've been talking about to Willy Wonka and all that. In Dan and Mass, there's some send-ups to Fantastic Four. You know, the Nexus Five, Fantastic Four, right? So, it's, and they're a family. And but anyway, um, yeah, I have I have all those comics, and uh, probably every three weeks or so, I'll get to the store. I'll make a special trip on like a Saturday morning or something, and get to the the comic store. I've a few around town that I'll I'll visit, kind of rotate around amongst. And I'll get like three weeks worth of comics. And uh, of course, the bill is higher than I used to be, <laughs> both because they cost more now and, and because uh, being a working person, I, I have a, when I was young, I think it was, I had a budget, right? And so I had to really just, you know, pick what were my favorites, like get two or three in a, in a week or something. But now I, I go a little bit maybe too crazy with uh, the big stack I bring home, especially because it's over three weeks. So. You, what, you, uh, you, what, what issue, what, what stories are you following, what are your best reads? Yeah, so, um, I, and I don't know if I know how to pronounce his name, but I'll, I'll talk about him since uh, since Sweet Tooth, Sweet Tooth just started on, on uh, Netflix on Friday. I'm a big Jeff, it's either Lemire or Lemire uh, fan. He's a writer um, who, who writes like different comics, like, uh, and some are independent, or for Dark Horse, and sometimes I work for Marvel DC, but like Sweet Tooth, he, he does the um, Ascender and Descender. Um, he does a series called Black Hammer, which is to me really cool because it's got all these send-ups to different heroes. Like Black Hammer is, um, well, the original Black Hammer is is a, a black superhero who has a hammer and he's very, it's very much like, okay, this is Thor, but he's, he's black with a hammer, right? So they called him Black Hammer. 
and there's one that's kind of like a little a girl that's kind of very reminiscent of uh, of Shazam, except instead of being a little boy that says a word and turns into um, um, uh, an adult superhero, she's a an adult woman who says a word and turns into a, a young girl who's a superhero, right? So it's, everything is like sort of flipped and he's, it's very creative. And, and of course, Sweet Tooth is, I don't know if you've seen that on Netflix, but it's very creative. It's about these hybrids. Okay, so there you go. I've only watched one episode because I was on vacation over the weekend. Um, so we just watched one last night. Um, but yeah, so I like those kind of stories. I mean, I like all kinds of stories, but of course, I do collect the superheroes. I still collect. I, I was just reading a Batman, um, I guess, last night or part, partly this morning. So I still get like the very traditional like Batman, Daredevil, that kind of stuff. Um, when I was young, one of my favorites was Swamp Thing. Like when Alan, I don't know if you know Alan Moore, but Alan Moore was this sort of Neil Gaiman um, contemporary uh, most people know Neil Gaiman as the writer of Sandman. I also read Sandman, but Alan Moore, Alan Moore was a, a big time writer, did The Watchmen and those kind of things. And he did a run on Swamp Thing. And um, it was funny because I was in a store a couple of weeks ago that I don't usually go to. And there was a, um, a young kid with his father and they were looking for a certain issue of Swamp Thing, which is very old from like the 80s. And even the store owner was like, you know, that's kind of expensive. Was, in my mind, I was... I was checking out with my stack. I was like, I have that, you know, <laughs> but I didn't want to sell it. So I didn't, I didn't bring it up because it was, you know, I, I wasn't going to propose, you know, exchanging information and, and selling it to him because it's just too, it's part of my childhood. Right. So it's, you know, I, I, I hang on to him at least for now. I think it's blasphemy, but surely somebody's put together the Alan Morris long run thing and just a standalone anthology that you can buy for 10 bucks or whatever. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm, I think I even have it. I think my, my, my wife bought that for me, I think, a couple birthdays ago, like the hardcover edition with the same issues that I already own, but they're so stacked away in boxes and things. And she knows how much I like that story that she bought me like the, you know, they come out with like the deluxe editions and they have the hardcover and they're oversized. And it's like the behind the scenes, you know, of the stories as well are, are in the, the thing. Um, I have a few of those, and Swamp Thing is one of them because uh, I'm just just such a fan of that whole that whole run. Yeah. Right now, my uh, my big pleasure is of Tobias Black is the uh, I think it's just called Superman and Lois is the new show on the WZ. And I don't follow no CW. I'm, I'm so I call it. <laughs> uh, I I don't follow all the CW multiverse, but right. this particular version of Superman is just so fantastic. He's got teenage sons. Of, oh, this is. It's a version of the story I love, but I haven't quite seen this before. Go on. Right. I've heard a lot of good things about that. I have to confess, I haven't watched any any episodes or even a minute of it, but I've seen quite a bit of, of good publicity about that version. So I'm going to have to to maybe find my way to it somehow, uh, somehow soon. But yeah, I've heard a lot of good things about that version. Well, the good news is by the time this is out, the Steve audience will probably will have the whole season available. Uh, waiting for them to, to binge watch, whereas I'm stuck in one a week, but that's okay because every week I've gotten a little something special to forward to. Yeah, yeah. It's sometimes it's good to have that old TV mode where it's like once a week. I, it's it's a 
I don't know. It's it's debatable, right? I mean, um, we did Mayor of Easttown, which a lot of people did, and um, it was a struggle to wait every week to find out, you know, the next thing you wanted to find out. It was such a good mystery. To me, it was anyway. Um, but like with last night, I was introducing, my wife doesn't read comics or anything. She waits for me to say, this is a good story. They come out of comic books. So I was telling her that about Sweet Tooth. And she does like the, sto the story. She just doesn't want to read comics. So, so she watched like Sweet Tooth last night. She watched um, the first episode with me. And then she was like, oh, we have to wait. You know, and I said, no, they're all here. Um, and she was like, oh, great. But then I said, but I'm tired. So let's watch it. <laughs> let's, let's cut it at one episode. So then she got mad all over again because she, she really enjoyed it. Um, so it's funny. I think you get used to all the episodes being released at once and having that access. But I do kind of like that old, and maybe just because I grew up on it, that old way that TV worked, like with Mayor of Easttown, how it worked, where you, you know, the way HBO does it. Because it's like, I don't know, builds that suspense or, or like the old serials in the movie theaters where they had the cliffhanger and then you had to wait till the next. I mean, not that I really experienced that, but I've read about them, right? Because it's a little bit before my time. But um, there's something too, like the cliffhangers and waiting the week. And, you know, it, it adds to the experience maybe a little bit, I think. But. Thanks. Um... My, my TV time is limited, not because like and I'm better than you, I read more kind of way, but because I play video games. So I'm like, all right, well, I could do one or the other, and mostly I choose video games. Yeah. I recommend uh, the new the HBO version of his Damon Lindelof did The Watchmen. Right. Uh, that one came out every week, and that was perfect because my wife was extremely, she does not do the superheroes off of it. She was extremely interested in that show so we could watch one episode. And we had all week to go and read the history associated with what we were seeing on screen and get caught up. We'll reread the original Watchmen to right. Oh, right, Zack Snyder changed things and fixed the ending, but the original ending was pretty good too. I, I yep. just divided the audience. Yep, I said it. Snyder's ending was better, made more sense. Anyway. Right. <laughs> I actually like Snyder's ending too. So let's yeah. And I was an original like Watchmen fan, like the the at the time it came out, I have the not the trade, but the individual issues, you know. So, I, mean, I was reading it as it came out back in the in the mid '80s. But uh, yeah, I agree with you, and and I loved the Watchmen, the HBO Watchmen series. And that was one where I couldn't interest her just right away in it, so I did it on my own. And then she started. The more she started to read about it, she was like, um, "Did you watch that? Can we watch that?" And I was like, more than happy to re do a rewatch which was her first time because I, I just thought that was just a, a fantastic take on where it could go, you know, next. Um, and in my opinion, I think a lot of people liked it because I, I know it got a lot of good publicity. So, yeah. I would have liked to have known a little bit more about Owl Man, but that's, that's just my preference. Hi, Al. That's just my preference. Yeah. And that was one where specifically because we couldn't, we couldn't shotgun the whole thing, uh, which which I've done occasionally, but I try not to do that because if I really like a thing, there's not that many great things that I'm really going to like. So even like with Sweet Tooth, it's all available now, but I'm going to dole that out slowly over a couple of weeks so I have something to, to continue to enjoy. But with Watchmen, it was absolutely perfect because you needed that week to go back and I'm like, oh, they didn't teach the Tulsa Race Massacre in school. Let right. me get caught up on that. Uh, and then I'll have greater appreciation coming into the next episode. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, even though we, by the time we got to it, it was something we could we could sort of binge. 
um, we still did a lot of that research in between, especially in the, the Tulsa, you know, massacre, because it was, it was so undertaught and just, you know, in an awful sort of way, um, not even sort of, but in a definitely awful way. But uh, yeah, so I see what you're saying there. And that is, yeah, so again, same point, you know, I can see the good and bad, right, of either one of those uh, approaches to it. Sometimes it's good to wait the week, sometimes it's good to binge. Yeah. We'll see where it lands. I, I read something where they said that, of course, you know, we jumped into this binging with Netflix and the way they decided to do it. And then all the other streaming services did that, um, except for like HBO. But um, that now they're kind of reconsidering it, that they're losing. And I, I think I skimmed this article, so I may not be representing it well. I hate when people do that. But I think what I read was that they were kind of losing audience because of the approach like they would get so many episodes in and then they wouldn't just wouldn't finish streaming it and they're actually finding that people stick with it more if they go back to the releasing it one one a week so there's a lot of debate um as i understand it anyway at these services to maybe have certain shows that they go back to the once a week or maybe completely go back i don't know i don't speak for netflix but <laughs> they might there might be a change someday at least with certain shows i don't know uh, eventually i'm sure there'll be a, another new format and everything will, will change again but right. so long as everybody's competing and spending ridiculous amounts of money to capture my attention even when it's a failure that's great i we win <laughs> yeah exactly right so many options i mean the problem now right is too many options that's uh, more the the issue um sometimes right because it's like i don't know what to watch or you know now netflix has that 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 um, feature where you you just can pick it and it'll kind of pick what to watch for you which i've never actually clicked on but i see it there and i'm always like you know i don't want to i don't want to get to that point right where i'm so indecisive that i have to have the the service pick I need to pick something on my own you know even if i watch endless trailers or whatever until i finally get to making some choice uh, so i'm going to hold out and not click on that you know pick for me whatever it's called uh thing because it just seems like uh that's giving it i don't know <laughs> i wish audible would up their their game and, and take a page out of some of these streaming services i've always got my audiobooks going and i'll get recommendations from so it's like oh you like this author uh, continue reading another book by this author as opposed right. to here's a, an author you've never heard of that writes something similar. Yeah. And that would give you be a little bit of a better, I don't know. No, that's a good idea. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I see a lot of every week, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I do a lot of Audible, a lot of audiobooks. In fact, we were just, we were just came off that road trip and we were listening to, uh, the uh, Hunger Games prequel, which we hadn't done yet. So uh, we're, we're a couple, we actually got the discs from the, the library, which I know is very antiquated, but <laughs> that's the way we did it. And, uh, and my wife is a big fan of the, the CDs for some reason. She likes to listen less by the streaming and more by the CDs. But anyway, so we did that on the trip and, and it was good. We got probably halfway through the book. Um, so. Don't know what happens next or how it ends, but uh, but eventually I will. And I, I do like audiobooks. And for the last Super Chef, um, the reader is going to be Ramon Deo Campo, which um, I think he he read one of Aaron Entrada 
Kelly's, I think it was We Dream of Space. Yeah, and um, and I think he won like an Audi Award for that or something. So I was very, uh, very pleased and honored that he was uh, willing to be the reader for The Last Super Chef. I haven't, haven't heard any of it yet, but uh, I know it's coming in the next month or so because uh, it's, it's... I saw on uh, Twitter that you had, that they were, you had been sent a bunch of samples by potential narrators and you were uh, following, I think you had Alice in Wonderland falling down the the well of all the uh, wonderful audiobook uh, narrators you were going to. That's right. That's right. What's your process of, of of picking between them? Yeah, it was it was um, it, very interesting and difficult. Um, I've had this for both books now, and you know, ended up we didn't have it the same across either one, so it was a different set for for book one and, and a different set for book two. Um, and what I did was, um, so when they send you that, they send you like a clip of their choosing from each of the, uh, just a link, you know. And so you can follow that. And it's basically a link to like the Audible page for the book they choose. And it's usually like the closest match they could find to to your book. It's a, it's a middle grade book. Because of course, a lot of these narrators will read not just middle grade, but adult books and nonfiction and all this stuff. And it's harder to it's harder to make the mental leap to how they're going to sound in your book with a nonfiction, for example. So, so they, they choose a, but what I do is I do listen to that one, but, but one is not, not enough. So I definitely do like a search on the person's name. And then I start, I start just going through like, and I'm listening to like, let's say for me, it's, it's been both times. Of course, uh, my main characters are, I have, they're both been male. So typically male, a male reader. Um, but of course, that person's also going to have to do um, the young girl characters that are in the book or the adult, you know, men and women. Right. And so and different things. So I'm, I'm listening for like range. I'm listening for, you know, things, how they how their humor comes across when there's something funny in the book. So it's hard because you you, you try to find samples and and so forth and um, you know they cut short after a certain amount of time i did this last time i actually was going on a long drive around that time um and so i i actually bought like two books from one narrator two books from made all these purchases I and mean, audible was very happy with me i think um and i i just was kind of not really listening to the book completely to listen to the book for a minute there Although later I did finish, I think most of the books I bought, but I was listening to just the narrator. So I would listen to one for a while and then I would switch to another book and, and listen to that one for a while. And eventually I made my choice and, and I chose uh, uh, Mr. Ocampo, um, hopefully I'm saying his name right, um, for for the, the last Super Chef. But that's how I did it. I just, a lot of listening, a lot of samples and purchases and, you know, because I felt like it was really important to just to get it as right as I could get it amongst the choice I was given, right? So, yeah. So I've got, I'm, I'm watching our time, and I, I know we're uh, we're coming toward the end of it. Uh, and I, you've got you've got sports scores to check it out. Eventually, this is much more important. Don't get me wrong, but but uh, yeah, you got to eventually uh, got to see how the Hawks are doing against the the Sixers. Well, we'll, we'll find out. One quasi, one fairly serious question for, they're all serious questions, but this one's a little more serious than average. I don't do gotcha questions, I've got, I've got a couple of uh, easier uh, questions, hopefully. But because you 
I don't be able to answer your question because you've been very public about the fact that you've got Parkinson's. And on January 2nd of 2017, you very publicly wrote about how Parkinson's was going to make you a better writer. And I read that. I thought, well, you know what? There's, there's a lot to that. And now I wonder, well, here we are, uh, 2021. It seems like this is the perfect time for a follow-up. Were you correct? Has it made you uh, a better writer in the way that you thought? Or has it made you a better writer in the ways you didn't perceive? Yeah, so that's a good question. So, yeah, so um, first of all, definitely um, it's out there about the Parkinson's. So so no worries there. Um, in fact, I didn't I didn't talk about the Parkinson's with my little uh, pitch for for the last Super Chef. But um, it's not really a spoiler or reveal at the end because it's, there's a lot more to the way the story ends. But um you know, for, for uh, what you call our listeners, esteemed audience, for esteemed audience. Uh, um, yeah, uh, so I have Parkinson's. And part of the reason I wrote The, the Last Super Chef was because um, I was having a lot of thoughts about that. And, and so basically, again, this is not a big spoiler or even a spoiler at all, but um, the reason the Super Chef is doing what he's doing is because he has Parkinson's. And so that character... Um, was created, I created him sort of out of, you know, the the thoughts I was having about, you know, getting through this and dealing with this and so forth. And maybe the, for those that are watching, um, you know, I have, I have pretty good control over my meds right now. So um, I don't maybe, maybe visually, you know, make it seem like I have, but I'm early in the disease. So anyway, um, the reason he's, he's doing what he's doing is because he also is dealing with an early diagnosis of Parkinson's. Um, so there's that. So <laughs> that's one of the, the sources of the book. Now, as far as like making it a better writer, um, I would say both. Um, I would say, you know, the, the new ways probably outside, if, if, if folks want to go back and, and find that blog post, my blog is still out there on my website and so forth. And I appreciate you finding it. Um, it probably as of about an hour and a half before we started talking. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So what I would say probably is talk about more of the new new things and, and folks can read that blog post and kind of see that stuff. And and I would say a lot of that is is also true and still true. But, um, you know, it led me to, to really, I think in writing, we're trying to be like, like sort of authentic. I think authentic is a big word for me in writing. So in fact, I think with the, the books, one of the reasons the books that got published, you talked earlier in the podcast about the ones that didn't get published. I think there were times in those earlier books, although some of them were good stories, where I wasn't really being completely authentic. You know, sometimes I was writing from the point of view of uh, characters that I really didn't have. I think, you know, we have this term own voices and stuff. I don't know. I know that that's kind of controversial and, and so forth, but um, I wasn't always being authentic. Let's let's say it that way and not use the own voices term. Um, so I think what something like Parkinson's has allowed allowed me to do is, you know, be authentic and really try to write something that and be very honest about the things I deal with through what the super chef is dealing with. And I think you you become a better writer the more authentic you try to be, the more authentic you you really are. Um, so, like, would I have been authentic if I didn't have Parkinson's? I mean, sure. <laughs> I suppose it's not Parkinson's that's making me better in that in that case, but I think it gave me something very that you know that was um, something that I could be 
more forthcoming about. And I think it's important as a writer to try to find those things that you can you can be forthcoming about and that really the emotions, the things that are important to you or the things that are happening to you or or whatever, you can kind of pour into your stories because I think that makes stories that resonate with people, even though they're, they might be very far away from those those experiences. You know, I hope I hope nobody reading it has to deal with some of the things. Um, but I suppose that's the way I would answer that question is that it allowed me to, to have a sort of a, a platform I knew I could be, you know, authentic about. I think in the first book, obviously, Dan and Mass, I was being very authentic about this love of comic books and baseball and sports and how, what it is to be a kid, you know, in that kind of town. It was very similar to the town I grew up in. Super Chef is less from my experiences as a kid. Like, I wasn't a kid who was this, this great cook or anything, like the, all that stuff I had to research. But what was, what was more authentic was, you know, the part that Super Chef is dealing with. So I don't know if I, I sort of jumped around that, that answer, but uh, maybe, maybe that works. I guess that's what comes to mind. Yeah. What, uh, what's next for you? Um, good question. So um, the contract that I have with uh, with uh, HarperCollins called for it was a two book deal with sort of an option for the third book. I think that's pretty probably pretty standard. So we've pitched the third book um, and we're waiting to find out if uh, if they're interested in you know moving forward with that one. It's I probably don't want to say too much about it because I'm sure it'll change significantly. But it's 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 very much inspired by. Um, I guess the climate of the last four years, there was sort of a, a normalization of lying and, you know, not to get too political, but, um, you know, maybe it's, it's obvious to folks where I fall, but yeah, there was a normalization of lying and kind of this, um, you know, I don't know how I want to say it, but it, it's just, there were a lot of things that bothered me and that I thought I wanted to kind of get upstream with kids about. So I didn't want to talk about politics or the parties or anything, but I wanted to get upstream. When I say upstream, I mean, I wanted to get to the base things that I was seeing. Like, you know, if, if you if you lie about something or if you do this kind of thing, it's so the next book is it's sort of a wrapped up in there's a gentrification plot line and there's there's a lot to it. It's, it's going to sound very messy because I'm, I'm early in the first draft, so it, it probably is very messy, but it's a story about a kid who um, really believes in his neighborhood and protecting it. And he learned this from a mentor he had that he no longer has, that he's very much missing, who taught him, you know, that, hey, you take care of the neighborhood you're in and, you know, you keep it, you keep it looking nice. So he, he's memorized like all the ordinances for his little town. It's not a, it's not a homeowners association. It's like a a city neighborhood so he knows like the ordinances of the town and that kind of thing and uh eventually what happens is there's this adult who decides there's a vacant lot that has a special meaning and um this adult decides to build like a mixed-use property on it and it's going to ruin the whole neighborhood so he has to fight that and he's fighting also these feelings that he's failing the memory of his his mentor um and so it goes from there, but it's it's a it's a it's a plot about uh, you know protecting your your neighborhood, protecting your neighbors, and 
you know, there's a lot of diversity in it and so forth. So I, I've, it sounds like I'm just throwing the kitchen sink in there with my description of it because I haven't worked on a pitch at all for it. But um, there's something there. And I've, I've been uh, enjoying working on it, although it's been a little bit like the Super Chef came kind of kind of easy for me in some ways. I mean, no book comes easy, but um, it was a ton of revision and all that. But uh, a lot of people talk about their second book and for the first time writing on deadline and saying it was so much harder than the first book. I didn't find that, but I am finding this third book for some reason, maybe because I'm I'm still fishing for, you know, everything that it's about. And um, I'm finding it a little bit more of a slog to 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 write, but uh, but I, I know I'm passionate about it. So I'm I'm uh, definitely fighting for it. So hopefully hopefully it works out. But we've written, you know, I've written enough of it so that we can submit to my editor and I know that this is where it's going. And so let's see if they if they're interested in it. I hope after re after hearing this description, they're probably going to be like, I don't know what he's <laughs> writing about, but I don't know if I want to publish it. <laughs> but uh, hopefully it comes out better than that. We're going to talk about it. And by then, you're going to have the uh, slick elevator pitch ready to go because you'll have That's been right. talking about it for a year and a half, two years. Right. <laughs> it's good. I think it's good for, for esteemed audience to see this early process and know that uh, we all have this stage where we're uh, kind of uh, struggling to figure out what it is that we're even doing, you know, with this writing thing, because that's where I am with this book three. But uh, it'll turn out, um, especially if my editor buys it, because I know she'll uh, she's so good. She'll fix me up and uh, help me get it to the right spot. I am. Uh, and you issued a new book. I had briefly started doing research for a sort of QAnon type story. I thought, well, there's no way to do this without some type of politics. And I've had it the last five years. I, I'm maxed out on that. So I said, oh, I'm doing talking animals. There's yeah. no chance any of them can be a political figure. That's, that's a good idea. That's a good idea. I mean, I really don't want it. I don't want to make it sound like it's political because it really isn't. It's just about um, I what I think are basic things that um, I think every kid, whether they're the son of one, you know, parents that are with one party or parents that are with the other party. I mean, these are things that I think every kid should aspire to, you know, be better than or whatever. I don't know, but um, it's not political. And there's, there's a lot of national trauma out there. There's got to be processed. And lots of authors need to need to you know process the the, the, the experience we, we, we've all uh, been through. But man, I'm. We, we're out of it. Somehow we survived it. I'm still not entirely clear how we did, but by God, we did. So maybe yeah. in a few years, I'll, I'll start to reminisce and like, oh, let me let me dig back into that and, and relive my trauma. But right now, nope, get me as far away from there as possible. All the sweet tooth, please. Although there's there's a big pandemic in that one. All, yeah. the, <laughs> all the fun stories that are going to get me away. Right. Well, even with Sweet Tooth, right, it's like um, I was reminded because it's been a while since I read the comic and I was trying to explain some things to my wife. And I was like, you know, the whole plot about did the hybrids and I'm not spoiling anything because it's all in the first episode, folks. So <laughs> but did the hybrids cause the virus or did the virus cause the hybrids? Like that's that sort of blame thing that I think, you know, he sort of was writing before we got to this whole point. And I'm not going to get into politics here, but you know, of the same sort of, um, you know, things we do where we say, you know, we got to find somebody who caused this, who made our lives, you know, worse. And then we got to go and blame them because this is what we, we need to do. And it's just like, 
Um, I think at a more fundamental level, when you tell stories like that, you're not trying to to be political or or say that you should see that this particular person was wrong about this particular thing because look what I'm writing. But you're more just writing about, you know, it's like you want to have a conversation with with your readers. You don't want to say, you know, here's a thing that bothers me. I don't know if it bothers you. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe our conversation is how, you know, and when I say our conversation, I mean, you're reading my the book that I've written. We're not going to actually talk, but we're having a conversation. And um, maybe it doesn't bother you. And maybe that's the conversation, right? Maybe I need to learn why it doesn't bother you or that sort of thing. So um, I think that's what, that's what you're interested in doing when you write, at least for me. I'm not interested in like telling anybody they should be doing this or that this person was wrong or this political ideology is, is, is incorrect or in any way. I'm just interested in the conversation, right? Like this happens and this happens and do we think about this and that, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, as far as uh, direct politics go, I've, I've, I've discovered that, you know, like I can talk uh, and I can say things that will divide the audience and no one's opinion is going to be changed. I, I would like that to be the case, but if events themselves haven't changed your opinion, what could I possibly say that's going to happen? Exactly. Yeah, I agree with that. Well, while we're For talking sure. politics, my favorite political subject, oh my God, flying saucers are real now, apparently. That's right. Uh, yeah. So I ask everybody that comes on, yeah. the, on the show, uh, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? I have not seen a flying saucer um, as far as a ghost, I have so many people around me that have ghost stories. My wife has them. Um, so my wife is a, is a painter. That's actually one of hers, but, uh, she's, she's always a uh, plain air painting. So she's always out in some field or on some farm or something. And she swears probably last, no, not last year. Cause that would have been during the pandemic, which she did do a lot of painting, but I think it was the year before she went on some event and they had, they, they had her at this old farm her and several painters, and um, there was this old cabin that nobody lives in anymore. And she said she was painting, you know, something. She sets up her easel. She's in a field, um, and she looked at the at the cabin, and she saw a guy leaning up against the the post smoking a cigarette. And she looked down at something, and she looked again, and he was gone. And so she swears that she sees it. She's got a couple other stories like that. Um, and my wife, my uh, mother also has a story when she was a little girl. Um, I think her, her grandmother had passed away and her, I think her aunt was getting married and she went into a bedroom and the wedding dress was laid out on the, on the, uh, the, the bed there. And when she walked in, it was just her. She was a little girl. She said the wedding dress was in the air. Like somebody had picked it up and was looking at it. And she swears it was her grandmother who was missing her daughter's wedding. I think that was the story. Um, sometimes I get the relations a little crossed. But, so I have plenty of stories where people have told me in my family uh, that, but I, I don't think I've seen a ghost or maybe I just don't believe that I've seen it and something weird has happened and I just always have a, a logical explanation being an IT guy or a computer guy or whatever. But uh, yeah, so I don't have stories myself, but those are the ones I could share. No UFO stories though. But I do believe that there's probably UFOs. I just haven't seen them myself. That's all but confirmed now. So I, yeah, I expect exactly. some of these episodes will age badly 
because the, the future generations are listening. Like, oh, those suckers! They don't know that the aliens are actually this this specific race from this specific planet. That have all the exactly. Yeah. Well, when they're watching X Files reruns in twenty years, they'll be like, "This is just silly because they're they're not that. They're this over here, and it'll seem like." Uh, why, why did they ever think that? But yeah, so, which I was a huge fan of X-Files at the time, but uh, it might not age too well, you're right. <laughs> oh, me too. In fact, when I was writing my alien book, The Book of David, available now as buddies, um, I one of my fears was, oh my God, what if disclosure happens before I finish? Let's type faster. <laughs> right. <laughs> the last well, thing I'll... I need is real aliens showing up and pointing out why my story is bullcrap. <laughs> Well, I'll have to check that out now. Now that I'm, I'm hearing it's, uh, it's about that, so I could, uh, yeah. Awesome. Well, with the speed of the of government disclosure, I figure I got about one or two more years. That's right. Well, I saw something on Facebook, and it was like um, the government has it has admitted that uh, that UFOs exist, and then it was like the next uh, slide, and it was like one of these memes, and he was saying, and no one cares because of everything else that's going on. <laughs> it's like this would have been major news 20, 30 years ago. You know, the, drop everything. You know, the, stop the world. This is happening, and now it's just like, yeah, they said there's aliens too. I guess you know, whatever. Exactly. What's the nice thing about everybody getting vaccinated and a, a president we don't have to think about on a regular basis? Uh, you know what he tweeted today? I have no idea. I wasn't reading it straight. Um, uh, we can go back and okay, now that we're a little calmer. What was that about the flying saucers? Oh, hold on now. <laughs> Come back. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Let's rewind that and let's play that again. Yeah. I could uh, talk to your face off all night, but I won't. So, uh, but I do appreciate you. You're being so generous with your mind. This has been fantastic. Uh, my uh, last question is always some variation. Uh, if you could go back toward the start of your writing career or anywhere you'd like that would be useful to you and give yourself some advice that would have made a significant difference for you and might make a difference for everybody watching or listening right now, what would you go back and tell yourself? Sure, yeah. So, um, good question. And um, I think part of it was um, was something I said earlier about, and I'll, I'm not going to regurgitate. I'll give a new answer. That you know the genre that you um, think you might be in is, or you think you might be best for your writing is not necessarily the one that your natural voice is in, and where you end up, you know, kind of finding success. So that's one thing I said earlier. Um, I think my favorite piece of writing advice just for any writing writer at any level is just trust your reader. Um, I think that I remember once I kind of learned that and what that really meant, which is hard to, to go into full detail here, but I think that's something with almost every sentence I, I write, every page I write, especially writing for kids, I always keep that in mind because you know, it's funny, we were talking about critique groups before, and I, I am in a lot of them, and sometimes I'll take my work to a critique group, and it'll be mostly writers who write for adults or um, not necessarily for, for kids, and they'll, they'll kind of say, is that sentence too long, or you have like three commas in that sentence, and so forth. So it's, it's, it's at a sentence level, it's at a like, you know, for kids, don't talk down to kids and so forth kind of level, but it's also at like... Um, you know, sometimes early writers will over explain things. They're like, oh, they're not going to get that. Like not even for kids, just for any, you know, readership. Um, and I think my writing changed when I realized that, well, trust your reader means 
you know, the way you dispense information in your sentences and in your story and in your, you know, paragraph by paragraph, but chapter by chapter, scene by scene, um, if you keep that in mind, it changes the way, you know, and I'm not going to do a whole writing course on it, but it changes the way you dispense information and, and that sort of thing. And so that's my favorite piece of, of writing advice is just trust your reader because it's something I always have to keep in mind for myself. Where can esteemed audience find you online, follow you on social media, and all that good stuff? Okay, sure. So I'm um, on Twitter. I'm I believe I'm C Negron Wright. So yeah, just C Negron and then W R I T E. Um, Instagram is probably the other best one to follow me. Um, you know, Facebook. I'm I do I do do public posts, but but not so much. Um, looking for folks to friend me per se, although you, you're welcome to. I don't like not do it. Um, but I think on, on Instagram, I'm negron.ca, if I'm not mistaken. So, um, or just look for Chris Negron. And if you've watched, you see what I look like. So I <laughs> look for the person that looks like me. Um, and then, you know, on the web, I'm, I'm chrisnegron.com. So it's on my website and that's where my blog is that we talked about briefly. And just upcoming events. I need to get everything updated. Well, this will this will happen after my launch, but I, I need to get all my events. Hopefully, I'm doing some events in August as well, so that in September and so forth, so that maybe uh, folks can look for me at other talks uh, with other bookstores or whatever. Um, as I schedule, you know, things for Super Chef as I as I go through uh, through launching that. So um, that's that's where you can find me for the foreseeable future with all the uh with all the books that are that are still to come yeah um, so I hope, we hope so we hope so right i don't know like i said I go check you out and see what you're up to then yeah <laughs> yeah exactly i was gonna say I, I don't know with that pitch i gave for that third book if uh if people want to want to look for that one it's so messy but uh but yes of course uh well, we certainly hope so we have a lot of events in the future and a lot of books to come and i hope i can write you know 50 middle grade books, but let's see where we go. We got two. <laughs> it's a good start. Yeah. Uh, Steve Dogg, you know who I am, I tell you every week, but go to middlegradeninja.com. It will change your life. You will read thousands of interviews with literary agents, authors, editors, all the best people. The back catalog of this amazing show. Download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. It will also change your life. And God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week.